I definitely don't have any regrets in pursuing sport to the level that I did because I think one of the wonderful things about sport is that it's very it's a very simply definable thing and mostly it's quite a healthy thing for a young person to go all in on I fully went all in on sport at one point I lived breathed I must have bored people around me as a lot of us as athletes probably have done with my obsessive level of interest in it and when you go all in on something you sort of I don't know you gain so much learning from that the kind of learning that you don't get when you do anything half-assed if you just go at it fully full commitment you learn and you get so much back that's Andy Blow and this is the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and my guest this week is Andy Blow. Andy is a friend of mine from the UK. He's a sports scientist with a degree in sports and exercise science, and he specializes in sweat, dehydration, and cramping. A former elite-level triathlete, Andy won an Xterra Age Group World title, and he also has multiple top 10 finishes at Ironman and 70.3 races to his name. He's worked as a sports scientist and advisor in the world of motorsports, but it was overcoming his own struggles with cramping and hydration that led him to specializing in electrolyte replenishment and founding the company Precision Hydration. In this conversation, we talked about how dropping out of a cross-country race as a kid had a profound impact on him and helped shape his approach to sport and life, letting his identity get tied up in sport and how he learned to separate the two, why it's hard for him to be objective and analytical sometimes, even though he's a scientist, where athletes are missing the mark with hydration and how solving his own problems as an athlete led to the founding of his company, battling burnout in his career and strategies for catching yourself before falling into a deep hole, and a lot more. I really enjoyed this one, and I think there's a lot to learn and take away from it. So let's dive right in with Andy Blow. All right, Andy Blow, my old friend. I wish we could have had this conversation the next time that you were going to be in California, but since we don't know when that's going to be, we will settle for a remote podcast recording. I'm excited to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Yeah, thanks, Mario. It's, um, it could be quite a while before I get back on a plane again, I reckon. Well, under ordinary circumstances, you probably would have been here in the States at least once by now, if not a couple times due to your work with Precision Hydration. Am I correct? Yeah, I was actually planning to be in, in the Bay Area in May, um, when about now when we're recording, because I was going to pop to see Matt Dixon and, and the guys that were opening their new performance center down in the uh, in the city. So that was, yeah, that was going to be a, a real highlight of the early part of the year for me. But yeah, obviously, luckily I hadn't got any flight tickets booked, but it's not come off. Before we go any further, let's start with an introduction for my listeners who are not familiar with you. Who are you and what do you do? Um, I'm uh, I trained as a sports scientist academically and I was a, a sort of uh, bad professional triathlete for a number of years, but I've been involved in endurance sports for at least, uh, well, the greater part of my life, really. I'm 40, 42 now. I started doing you know, kind of endurance events when I was in my teens. And um, yeah, just, just I think like you and like a lot of other people that I've met on my journey through sport, I'm just one of those people who I'm 
endurance sport is a, a big part of what anchors me. It's about who I am. So, um, yeah, that's probably a, a brief description. What was your initial introduction to sport in general? Uh, my my dad was always big on pushing sport, not in a pushy way, but he always wanted to get me involved in sport and he played uh, football or soccer. Um, and so that was the path I went down at first. And then he also encouraged me to do a lot of sports. So um, even well before the days when people were promoting that kind of, you know, diversity of sport for kids, he would, he would have me swimming and I joined the swimming team and uh, did cross country running and that kind of thing. So, and, and then he actually participated in a lot of those things with me. So he was, he was always a, a big part of the encouragement. So it's always been part of my life. Which of those sports were you most attracted to as a young kid? At first, definitely soccer. I was convinced like a lot of young kids in, in Britain are that I was going to be a professional soccer player. Um, that seemed like the, the life for me, but but kind of ran up against the talent wall uh, in my early teens and realised that you know, that, wasn't, that wasn't an option open to me. And at the time I was running cross country and that kind of thing. And whilst I wasn't doing brilliantly at it, I seemed to, I don't know, I, I enjoyed I sort of enjoyed the struggle of it and I enjoyed the training and um, that then became what I plowed my energy into for a number of years. Were you on some sort of a cross country team or was this largely an individual pursuit at the time? Yeah. In, in the UK, we have a, a guess slightly different system to in the US where I would run, you know, you kind of start off obviously running for your school and then we have the county level which is then all of the schools within a, a county area. Um, and I progressed through from running for the school, for the county, and then running at the the inter-counties or the English schools championships and that kind of thing. And obviously then the, the cream of the crop from those go on to run internationally. And as a runner, I didn't make the cut to run internationally, but I ran pretty consistently at that inter-county and uh, English cross-country level. And then outside of that, I ran for a club called Charmwood Athletic Club, which was based at Loughborough University, which was where my, my dad used to run with the marathon running older guys group. I used to do the kind of track running kids group. When did you start tasting some success in sport? Oh, I didn't, I don't, th when I went to university, basically I didn't, and I, and it took me a long time to you know actually sort of win anything or get on the podium for anything. I was, when I was running for the county, I grew up in a county called Leicestershire. And when I made the team, there would be six or eight places on the team. And I would be like pick five or six in that. And so I was never one of the real front runners. But when I went to university, I went to the University of Bath to study sport and exercise science. And right on the campus there, we had a 50 meter swimming pool. I was getting into triathlon at the time. And we had a, we had a 50 meter pool. We had uh, a triathlon coach. We had loads of time in the day to train and I, I paired up with a guy called Paul Newsom, who now runs a company called Swim Smooth out of Australia. And Paul and I sort of were on a mission to to make the Great Britain team for triathlon. And so we we went from probably both of us training moderately when we were at home to training basically like full-time athletes when we went to university. And we followed a program designed by a guy called Chris Jones, who was really top um, British triathlon coach at the time and it, that took me from sort of being as a runner for instance um, I was probably running 
17 minutes for 5k when I when I went to university and then within a year I was kind of touching 15 minutes that sort of I made that sort of fairly substantial leap that took me from being just an also running triathlon to actually being pretty competitive I'm going to put a pin right there because there's a lot that I want to come back to but let's rewind a bit to your youth outside of sports and getting into some cross country and other things what else were you interested in in general uh, I, I played a, I played a bit of music, uh, piano and guitar, and that kind of thing. Um, badly, but like way way worse than my sport actually. But um, but enjoyed it a lot, and just just I guess a lot of the usual kind of other things that kids kids are into. And my brother and I did a bit of skateboarding and and that sort of stuff. And my brother actually went on and is still um, a pretty good skateboarder and surfer and all of that. But I found that he had the where he had the kind of aptitude for those gymnastic and skill type sports. I, I've always found that really, really tough, but what I seem to be, I seem to just enjoy, like I said before, the struggle and the grind of the endurance sports stuff. So that was really the main thing that I pursued. And I think even when I think back now, when I was kind of mid to late teenage, when you're, I guess, defining who you are a little bit, my thing was always like being an athlete. Yeah, that's what I that's what I wanted to be and that's what I wanted other people to see me as. Do you remember any of those early moments of struggle that really just stuck with you and fueled you to stay with it? There's, there is one there is one thing that really stuck out with me and that was in a cross country race round that they used to be held at the local schools and the school I went to was called Gruby College and we used to have a a cross country race for all of the county around the, the college campus and it was several laps and one time I obviously I think looking back I probably just went out really really hard and um, found it found it really hard and I actually dropped out of that race and that was like a bit of a turning point because I, I really I really didn't like the fact that I dropped out and wanted to understand why I dropped out and kind of where comparing myself again with my brother which I often do he he didn't like he was a very good runner my brother was a better runner than I was but he really didn't like the running and the competition and the pain of it and all that kind of stuff and so after a few years drifted out of it but I dropped out of that race and I sort of remember after that thinking to myself you know I will never ever because the pain of, of running was hard but the pain of dropping out was worse and I sort of thought at that point I'll never ever drop out of a race again, and that made me—I don't know—redouble my efforts to to stay the course and try and sort of prove something to myself about about you know I I kind of felt like I enjoyed what that represented, like toughing it out as an athlete, and that was a way to way to make myself stronger. I want to pull on that thread a little harder when you go through tough moments in your life, whether it's in sport now or in business. And we'll talk a bit about that later in this conversation. Do you ever think back to that cross country race when you dropped out and that memory helps you to keep pushing on? Yeah. I I think all the time, really, it's something that I was pretty young. I don't even know how old I was when that happened, but the fact that it's fairly well burnt in my brain suggests that it was, it did, I don't know why it did something to me. And I'm sort of sat recording this with you in my, in my home office. And my brother made me a plaque to go in here because we used to, this is where we started the the company precision hydration working from really. And 
unprompted when we set it up he he made me a little brass plaque and it says on it it just says it's hard to beat a man who never gives up because i didn't ask him for it but he i I guess he thought that that was something that that i would relate to and so quite often i've got one of those plaques on the wall here and i've also replicated it now and put one on my desk in the regular office at work because just occasionally when things get tough that's that's like a mantra that I think I got from participating in sport that I try and bring to to other areas of life. I love it. Back when you were a kid in school, when did you start taking an interest in science? Because you eventually went on to study sport and exercise science at university, and it fuels a lot of what you do now professionally. Yeah, we had a uh, one of the reasons I moved to the the this, this school I did to study before going to university was that they had a sports science program. And I, th- I think if I'm honest, it was, it was less the science and more the sport that I was interested in, but I was very, very keen to pursue something in sport. And if that, if I couldn't be a professional athlete, then I definitely knew that I wanted to work in sport. So sports science at the time, this was in the late nineties when sports science was just starting to become a thing that you could actually you know, reliably study and potentially get a career in. So uh, my mum and dad were, were relatively supportive of that, although they were a bit keener on me going down the route of maybe, you know, physiotherapy or medicine or something where there might be a, a link with science and the human body, but not so much sport. For me, it was all about, you know, studying sport. And if science was the route to to doing that, then I was fine with that. When you were younger, did you think like a scientist in terms of when it came to solving problems or other things that you were working through in life? No, no. I think I was definitely, and still still can be at times a bit more emotionally charged. You know, it was, it, I've, I've, I've tried to learn from the science and the scientific process actually, and, and certainly try to reflect it in the way that we now work with athletes to solve their fueling hydration training problems to try and be a little bit more objective but i would actually say it's kind of runs counter to my character in some ways because i for myself i find it hard to be objective and analytical although i I think it's something i've tried hard to work on as i've got older why is that so hard for you to be objective and analytical i think it's i don't necessarily find it hard when i'm working with someone else but i for whatever reason I i find it harder for myself um I think one of the reasons that you know I I went after sport so hard was for whatever reason I wanted to prove something to myself you know that I was going to be really good at something and then when you get really wrapped up in trying to prove to yourself or to anyone else that you're really good at something the the objectivity can go out of the window because it becomes a bit of a mission at all costs and I definitely pursued sport in a in a I think largely a productive way, but sometimes in a less productive way and a less objective way, because it was giving, you know, I was trying to sort of um, pursue it to, to, to satisfy some emotional need to do well at something. Did you let your identity get tied up in sport when you were younger? Very much so. Um, it sort of happened quite gradually. And then when I noticed and when I look back and, and think that I, it almost became a problem was when I I was getting towards what would what 
was the end of my career as of, of doing sport really seriously or doing it full time and I got a knee injury and I it was quite a bad knee injury and it kept reoccurring it was a tendon problem and I went ended up going to see my doctor about it numerous times and he he was sort of saying to me well Andy I think you know you this is this could be quite bad and you may have to take a significant amount of time off you may not be able to run this and I and I remember sort of saying to him well that's impossible you know because this is what I am, this is who I am, this is what I do, and I need to fix this. And I, I sort of almost bullied the doctor into giving me cortisone injections and things like that to keep me on my feet and keep me going. And in the end, that that led down a very dark path of, of a, a really serious injury. And it was only having, you know, then having being forced to stop for a while that you start to realise that actually that's you know, that wasn't a good, that wasn't a good way to be. And so you kind of, you know, have to stop being wrapped up in all of that. Do you remember when that light bulb went off for you? I think it's been quite gradual, to be honest, because I, I had knee surgery about 12 years ago now. I think it was about 12 years ago, something, something like that. And even sort of coming back off that, I had a few times when I went back in to try and be competitive in sport again because I felt that I'd always think maybe you know I don't I don't need to do this anymore and then I'd start to train a bit and get a bit fitter and and the old habits would come back but I think gradually over the years it's just I've I've managed to I've I've started to I've gone a long way down the process of you know distancing myself from that and and realizing that actually what sport needs to be especially now at the point of life I'm in now is like it, it needs to be a healthy addition to the rest of my life it doesn't need to be my life do you still compete yes um although very much so you know for fun so I've I've done races probably apart from the year when I had knee surgery I've probably done one or two races every year for for years and years but I I tend to pick things that that are a bit different they're a bit exciting I've been doing a lot of swim run racing and other things like that. And, and although I, I sort of train as hard as I can, given the constraints of my lifestyle and, and when I compete, I tend to push myself as hard as I can. I'm way less, you know, bothered about the, the actual outcome of them these days. On the process side of things, are you enjoying the training more at this point of your life or in a different way at this point of your life than you did when you were younger? Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm loving the training, um, and but very. But I used to also a lot of the time. I used to love my training. I've always loved exercising and you know doing sessions and that kind of thing. I think now though, I've kind of learned to love it in a different way, and and I've I've yeah I've, I'm, I feel like it's at a level now where you know you, as you mentioned before, I travel a lot, and one of the massive highlights of that for me is apart from meeting the people that I get to meet on my travels is getting to run and swim and sometimes cycle in really amazing different places like you know when I visit you and uh, the bay area just the running you've got there is is fabulous and so I can go out and use my fitness to enjoy doing you know some epic things when I'm out on the road and it's kind of those type of enjoyments that I take from it now rather than what it used to be was always kind of getting faster or hitting a new split or a time or a PB or whatever. 
So it feels less business-like. Oh, fully, yeah. It's now it's now like a really massively important hobby for me and something that if it was taken away from me, I'd really struggle without. But at the same time, it's 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 entirely, you know, based on on what it does for me and not what I feel it does for me in other people's eyes. Let's go back to your university days at Bath. How were you thinking about yourself as an athlete during that period of your life? And how are you thinking about the academic pursuits that you were about to undertake at school? The For me at university, the sport came first. So I, would, I was training really, really hard. And I wasn't I didn't really massively neglect my studies, but they, you know, they would come second to my training a lot of the time. And my goal as an athlete at Bath was initially, which turned out to be a little bit pie in the sky, but it was there, was to try and make the Olympic Games because that was that was a big thing in the late 90s in triathlon. The Olympics was coming 2000, 2004. The, the British team was very strong. We had one of the favourites for the gold medal, a guy called Simon Lessing at the 2000 Olympics, and he was training at Bath some of the time with us. So with all of that in my face, it was very, I was very much kind of sucked into that, that world of aspiring to do that kind of thing. So that was, that was my, that was what was driving me at that point in time. Did you have much triathlon background going into university or did you pick it up there when you know, you got into the pool with, I, I can't remember the, the swim speed guy's name, but um, oh, with the gentleman that you, yeah, Paul, that you had mentioned earlier in this conversation. Yeah, I'd, I'd done a few years. So I'd probably started doing triathlons when I was in my mid-teens and we, you know, going to university at about 17, 18. And I'd, I'd trained kind of what I thought was quite hard, but that was very uneducated, just, you know, doing it off my own back. So it was a big, it was a big step for me. Like I could swim and I could bike and I could run when I went to uni and, and not to a terrible level, but it was, it was there that I went in almost in like six months. I went from being a very, very amateur level up to kind of junior international level. In your sports and exercise science studies at university were you trying to apply any of that knowledge to your own training or make some kind of connection there? Yeah, definitely. We were, I was I was definitely a big one for picking the brains of the physiology lecturers and those kind of people that we had to see what we could learn to apply to our own performance. And also, we had some we had some really good coaching staff at the University of Bath. We we had Chris, although Chris Jones, the guy who was coaching me initially, wasn't based there. He was working within a an umbrella system for the for the British team and there was a guy called Richard Hobson who was a retiring professional British triathlete who was installed there as the head coach so between them and the academic studies I was definitely trying to tap into you know what what the latest and greatest advice was on on things that you should be doing to improve your performance toward the end of your time in school where were you at Athletically, had you made enough progress at that point that you were contending for national teams? Yeah, I was. I was just sort of on the cusp of that. I was. I'd made the national team as a junior um, while I was at, still at university in the first year, and then I was. I was kind of on the fringes of the senior squad for for some of the events um, as I progressed through. But 
um, during my time at university, I kind of experienced quite a lot of burnout and overtraining towards the end and, and actually essentially kind of left university as a bit of a lost sheep because I kind of wanted to carry on with the training and racing, but I felt like I was being not, not in a, not in a deliberate way, but I was kind of being spat out the side of the the system because I was not quite good enough. And that was probably a true reflection, but it was, it also was a tricky time for me because at that point I'd kind of put all my eggs in that basket of wanting to pursue this and then, and then actually had to change course a little bit. But I was really lucky in that the first job that I got out of university, I was working for a guy called Bernie Shrewsbury, who's a human performance guy working in motor racing. And he was an ex-triathlete and he recognized my interest in triathlon and my passion for it and, and really encouraged me and said, look, just because you're not going to go to the Olympics or make the British team in the traditional way, there's lots of other avenues that you can pursue in the sport. And he encouraged me to look at Xterra, which is the off-road you know, mountain bike triathlons and Ironman and that kind of thing and gave me a huge amount of latitude with my job at the time to train and compete. And, and that, that kind of gave me a second bite at it as an athlete. What was your job at the time exactly working with some of those racing teams? So I was, I was the sports scientist for a team back then called the Benetton Formula One racing team, which is kind of the, the international equivalent of, of IndyCar racing. And what we, what I had to do was fitness test the drivers and then work with a doctor, with a physio and with Bernie, who was the human performance manager to manage the training camps and the training programs for the, for these drivers. So it was a super fun job. I would spend a lot of time uh, abroad from the UK in Lanzarote and in the South of France, organizing these training camps and then, and then through the season, a little bit of time on the road at the motor racing circuits, you know, doing one-to-one training with the guys. And simultaneously, as you just described, you're also taking the next step in your own athletic career. So I'm curious, like, as you're working with these top level drivers who are incredible athletes in their own right, what did you learn from them and being in that environment that influenced your own perspective on athletics? That was one of the best things about working with those guys was that those people that I was working with then. And, and actually Bernie himself, because Bernie had been, although he was retired as an athlete, then he was, um, Bernie was a, an ex-Special Forces guy in the UK. So a bit like he was in the, the Special Boat Service, which is uh, like the Navy SEALs equivalent before mm-hmm. he did that job. So he was a very sort of high performance guy. And then the racing drivers that I worked with were top of their game. They were truly world-class athletes in what they did, not necessarily as fit as I was at that time in aerobic fitness and those kind of things. But in what they did, they were top of the top of the tree. So I got exposure to, to working with and being around people who were really, really high performers. And I think that I, it was at the time I maybe didn't realize exactly what I was learning, but I was absorbing a lot by osmosis by being in a really high performance environment. What were some of those things that you were absorbing at the time, even if you didn't know it at the time, but looking back? I think one of them was was like looking at the work, at work ethic. And um, one of the things that always stuck in my mind was a, was a working with a guy who's, who's remained a good friend of mine over the years is, is Mark Webber, who's a, a, who was a Formula One driver. He won the Monaco Grand Prix a number of times and and did had a really successful career. He, he retired a few years ago. And Mark and I are a similar age and 
Mark was one of the few, one of the few guys that would kind of meet me at the gym before everyone else needed to get there because he was so keen to get extra extra training in and he was always kind of famously one of the last to leave when we're at the motor racing circuits he was one of the last to leave after debriefing with the engineers and that kind of thing and I definitely I had a lot of respect for Mark and and I think he had quite a lot of respect going the other way and and sort of there was that reinforcement of you know at, at the time because we were young single you know guys who were pursuing a goal there was a lot of reassurance that actually putting in the hard yards and and being really focused and driven was 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 a very healthy and necessary thing at that point in your life to to try to pursue excellence. This episode is brought to you by my friends at Tracksmith. Tracksmith is a Boston-based brand led by a group of runners who are committed to making classically stylish, cutting-edge running apparel. Their focus is real-world athletes, so the kind of runners who sneak a workout into their commute or plan vacations around races. Sound familiar? does to me. Tracksmith designs all their products for the needs of serious amateurs, so they only use the best materials, from sweat-wicking, stink-free merino wool to a unique Italian nylon knit for their performance shorts. And all their garments feature thoughtful details that let you focus on your workout. As we head into summer, I love, love, love training in the Twilight Tank and the Reggie Half Tights. It's one of my favorite combinations, especially when I want to run fast. Both pieces are lightweight and super breathable, which helps me stay cool and allows me to move freely when the temperature starts rising. To welcome listeners to the podcast, Tracksmith is offering $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. To learn more, visit tracksmith.com slash Mario and enter the code Mario15, that's Mario15, when you check out. That will save you $15 off your first Tracksmith purchase of $75 or more. My thanks to Tracksmith for their continued support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. What was your relationship with sport like at the time, a couple of years removed from university? It, it improved dramatically, actually. So towards the end of my university career was probably a real low point because I was getting burnt out and fed up and, you know, just not not in a good place with it. And then being outside of it, training with people who weren't my direct competitors, who I wasn't comp- competing for places on teams with, having the encouragement of Bernie, who was a very sort of supportive guy around, um, you know, me me pursuing these dreams. It it gave me, like I said before, that kind of second wind, and it was from then on. And actually, after a few years of working with Bernie, we we separated because he went to to work for another company and i went to 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 go off and actually do my own thing like doing some some training with racing drivers as a separate business and around that time that it gave me that that space to just pursue it on my own and what i found was that for me i know that there are a lot of athletes that thrive in a group setting but i think for me when i was trying to get the best out of myself. What I learned was that I needed to do a lot of my training and focusing either on my own or, or away from people that I would, would ultimately be competing with. And that was a much more productive environment for me. Were you falling into a bit of a comparison trap? Definitely. Yeah. Because I was, I was one of the, at university in the, in the high performance training group, I was one of the low performers. So I was always, there's always someone who is 
who's faster than you in a given session or on a given day. And so you were constantly trying to, and rather than having the self-confidence at the time to just accept where I was at and go easy if I needed to go easy or and push when I needed to push, I was just pushing all the time, you know, just massively smashing it to try and, you, you know, that Bernie's phrase that he used to use with me, he said, you know, the problem is with those kind of environments is you're only as good as your last training session. You're only as good as your last session. If your last session wasn't good, your confidence is gone. And that's just destructive. And I kind of look back on that and think, yeah, that's probably what happened to me at that time was I didn't, I didn't have that confidence to, to just accept that, you know, I didn't have to prove myself two or three times a day, every day. It was, you know, it was just too much pressure for, for me to, to cope with. That's really sage advice. And obviously a lot of athletes who are listening to this, haven't been in that type of team environment or competing at that level, but they experience it in their own ways, whether it's with their local club or online, just looking at what other people are doing on Strava and they immediately feel bad about what it is that they've been doing. And I'm seeing a lot of that right now during this COVID-19 pandemic because people open up their feed and there's always someone who is just crushing it, Um, but they're not for whatever reason. And usually it's very legitimate reasons, but they just they just can't stop comparing themselves to what other people are doing, and they they feel bad about it. Definitely, and and for me, you know, I mentioned Paul um, Newsom earlier, the guy that I trained with, and Paul and I for a few years at university were inseparable and like you know best friends with the same age, with the same build, we had the same sort of mentality towards training, and we we got on like a house on fire. But eventually, we ended up falling out pretty catastrophically because because of the intensity of that, like competing against each other all the time. And you've, you've probably been there, Mario, with people that you run with. If you've, if you've run with them regularly, they're just, sometimes people run half a step in front of you and it just, it's, it's like not something which should be quite as annoying as it is, but it can be the worst thing. It builds in the world. over time. Yeah. And it just, it just like aggravates you. And Paul and I ended up, and now we're, we're really good friends again, you know, all these years later. And we've, we actually did a swim run race together a few years ago and stuff, but it took us a long time to kind of get back together because I think that the intensity of when you're an athlete chasing a goal, when you're trying to do that in the company of others who are equally driven and in our case, kind of basically competing for the same spots in the same teams and that sort of thing. And you've, you've very evenly matched. That is a pressure cooker. And it, yeah, it, the one thing I, do, I think that the people who supported and coached me early on when I was a young athlete, by and large, did a really great job. But I think the one thing that that people didn't do very well was was identify those kind of individual mm-hmm. characteristics. And and someone needed at some point to look at me and Paul and one or two others and kind of separate us and sit us down and talk to us about training on our own a bit and not worrying about smashing our heads together the whole time. And if there's one regret that I have is that no one was able to do that. And it wasn't until I got that space to breathe and go and compete and train on my own that, I, that, that my performances really started to, to you know, reach closer to the, what the peak probably was. How about now? You're obviously at a very different point of your life as a competitive athlete, but do you still find yourself needing to primarily train on your own or have you allowed yourself to enjoy the company of others because you don't compare yourself quite like you used to? Yeah, I I actually really do it. When I get the opportunity to, I love training with other people now. So, um, 
I there's a group of three or four of us kind of um, older guys that that run and we get together on a usually pre-COVID anyway it was um, on a Saturday morning and we'd go out and do a run and um, some actually both of the both of the main two guys that I run with Nigel and, and Dan are ex um, competitors of mine in triathlon and Nigel was a very good runner he were, I think he ran two sixteen or two seventeen for a marathon. Um, you know, back in you know, 15 years ago and keeps himself fit. And Dan has been a Spartan racing champion, you know, the kind of obstacle course racing stuff. But we can go out and we just enjoy going out and having a long run and chewing the fat. And, you know, there's a few spurts up hills and a bit of a bit of gentle competition. But that's that run is one of the, normally is one of the highlights of my week um, because the competition in it is kind of like healthy and tongue in cheek. And it's not got that that niggly aggressive undertone that you get when you're really training day in day out with the same people. I mean, out of necessity, most of the time I end up, I do end up doing a lot of my training on my own now, but that's more just because of lifestyle and because there's not a lot of people that want to get up at 6am and, you know, meet for a run or whatever. <laughs> Cause um, when you've got kids, that's kind of how you have to do it. Uh, I do, I swim with a really great bunch of people when the swimming pools are open. And again, that, but that's very relaxed and informal and, you know, no one cares. I, they, they all, they all do take the mickey out of me because I often turn up 10 or 15 minutes late to each session. But, you know, back in the day when I was at university, if you turned up 15 minutes late, you probably wouldn't have been allowed to join the session. Whereas these guys just, you know, they just take them, they just take the mickey out of me and let me get on with it. So it's, it's way more social. I, I love hearing that because it's very relatable on this end. And I've been involved in sport for a long time, much like you have, and had very similar tendencies. And we've talked about those in the past, mm. and we'll get into a little more of it later in this conversation. But I'm at a point now in my late 30s where I still like to get out. I mostly run by myself because right now we have to, but that's what the schedule dictates. But when I am able to get together with my training partners once a week and we go hard and we push each other, but it's not competitive. Um, yeah. And it's not like we're we're out to prove that, hey, I'm faster than you or or vice versa, but it's this this shared suffering. We're almost playing. And, and a lot of us have those similar backgrounds too, where maybe 15 years ago, we would have tried to, to slay each other. Now we're just pushing each other and enjoying it more because it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't yeah. mean that, oh, like I'm going to be ranked higher than you or I'm going to beat you in this weekend's race. It's just like, hey, we're out here sharing an experience and it's a pretty special thing. Yeah, it makes all of that, the experiences that I had going through that with sport, they kind of, it all makes you who you are. And, you know, I definitely don't have any regrets in pursuing sport to the, to the level that I did because I think one of the wonderful things about sport is that it's very it's a very simply definable thing and quite and mostly it's quite a healthy thing that you that for for a young person to go all in on you know like i went i fully went all in on sport at, at one point i lived breathed it was i must have bored people around me you know as a lot of us as athletes probably have done with my obsessive level of interest in it and when you go all in on something you you sort of i don't know you gain so much learning from that the kind of learning that you don't get when you do anything half-assed you know if you just if you just go at it fully full commitment you you learn and you get so much back but I look at it now as a dad I've got two kids and I look at because I when I was younger 
I, I would have always thought if I have children, I want them to be athletes and go into that. But, but now my attitude to my own kids in sport is, is very different in that I'm going to definitely encourage them to be sporty and they already are. We do park run, which is a great initiative. I know they're not as big in the, in the U S as in the UK, but we have all these fantastic free park runs on a Saturday and Sunday morning and we do park run together and we ride bikes and stuff. But I have very, you know, I've, I've, I have no ambition on their behalf for what they, for, for getting them involved in sport other than that I'm going to give them the opportunity and see if they want to do it because I also have had a bit of a taste of that sort of, that kind of slightly negative and destructive side of things if you, if you take it too far. I appreciate that. Let's go back to your first few years out of school. You described earlier how you started to get into Xterra, your relationship with sport and competition had evolved from a few years prior in university. You'd done some work with Formula One teams and your mentor had moved on to a new job. You were starting to do some different things. How were you thinking about your career path outside of sport at that time? Yeah, at that time I was, I was starting to think about, yeah, what am I going to do to, to, to make a living for the rest of my life and what do I want to do? And as a lot of us do, you know, the natural tendency is, you know, as your as your sort of career as an athlete is starting to to look a bit like there's less in front than there is behind, kind of thing. You think, well, one thing I have learned is I can pass this on to others, and I'd had I did some coaching qualifications and I started coaching and that kind of thing. But what? But because of the interest in in science and that had been developed through, you know, trying to be more analytical about my performance and also. I'd had some very specific problems as an athlete in the heat with sweat and hydration and cramping and that kind of thing. And I was, I was lucky enough that when I was working in motor racing, I, I met a guy called Dr. Raj Jutley, who is a, a medic and a heart surgeon, but someone who's really into motorsport. He's an amateur rally driver. And I started to talk to him about these problems I had with hydration and cramping and stuff. And he said, he helped me to understand the physiology behind you know, electrolyte loss and how that might be impacting my performance. And then because of what I was doing, all of that started to come together as an, as a, as an idea for, okay, well, you know, maybe there's something in this for taking this knowledge about um, sweat and hydration and that kind of thing and specializing it and taking it to athletes and seeing if it meets a need. And that was, so in the, this was in, I don't know, around sort of 2006, 2007, when, when I was doing my last races as a triathlete, that this, this idea started to come together and, and eventually led to, to me, you know, forming a company that is now Precision Hydration. So you started going down this path to solve some of your own problems as an athlete. What were some of the first steps that you made outside of, your own issues to help other people and sort of test these concepts that you were coming up with? Well, what we did was when I explained to him the problems I was having in, in the heat with hydration, Dr. Jutley had said to me, well, there's this kind of sweat test that we can use in a medical setting that might be applicable to you as an athlete. So let's try that. And, and he made a prediction on the, what the results might show for me. And lo and behold, his prediction was extremely accurate. So we, he tested the amount of electrolytes I was losing in my sweat. I didn't know at the time there was a huge inter-individual variance in that factor. And he said, I think you're going to be losing a lot. He was right. So 
what we then did was we reached out to the, the manufacturers who made the sweat testing equipment and, and sort of said to them, we've got this idea. It, it seems like this might, you know, be of interest to athletes. So with your blessing, could we do a bit of a study? And we recruited loads of the athletes that we knew and started to test them and, and started to, to gather data and actually, and actually see that there might be some mileage in it. So that was the first concrete step that we made was, was kind of getting basically informally getting a bunch of athletes together, testing them, trying to tweak their hydration plans and things and seeing if it was actually impactful. So were you tweaking their hydration plans with existing products that were already on the market or did you start to formulate some of your own at that point? Yeah, no, no, we did. We definitely weren't formulating our own. We were very much, we very much took the view at that point in time that, you know, the, the market was saturated with hydration products and sports drinks and that kind of thing. And it scared the living daylights out of me to think, you know, how do you, you know, bring a product to market. What we wanted to do was consult with athletes and help them get faster and by using the tools that were already available to them. Mm-hmm. And it was only quite a few years later that we got to the point where actually we found that it wasn't so much, the market was a little bit lacking in what was available, but but also more crucially, it was the information about what was available and the, the way that the products were sold was was so confusing to athletes. We just thought, well, a very a, w- a way to cut through that is actually to produce products ourselves that are very clear in what they're trying to do, so that we can then help help people to you know, get things right. Rather than we were sending athletes off with plans that we put together, but the plans required so much fiddling. Of you know, it might be okay, Mario. We've tested you, and you know, we think that although. A, you might benefit from drinking a regular Gatorade. You kind of need to mix it to two thirds of its actual strength or something like that. And then whilst in theory that might work in practice, are you really going to do that every time you go out or when you need it? And the, the answer was no. So we, yeah, we tried very kind of, high. Yeah, exactly. We, we kind of shifted to this practical thing of like, well, what people need is different levels of, you know, in our case, electrolyte replacement based on what they're, they're losing. So rather than, try and um, butcher that from what's already out there. Let's just make three levels of of product and and see if they sell. Before I ask you more about that, how did you go about solving your own hydration problems? That that was when I I did start to get a bit more scientific about things. So it's a good bit of organized trial and error, really, building some spreadsheets. And what Dr. Jutley did with me was said, look, Andy, this is based on the test results, this is what we think you're losing in terms of sweat and in terms of electrolytes. And this is what, based on what you're telling me, you're currently drinking and eating, this is what you're taking. And he kind of showed me the massive gulf that existed between those two things and said, let's let's see, let's work in an organized way towards more, uh, a higher level of replacement and and see what effect that has. So we we started this kind of organized trial and error process in training and in competition. And that for me was was like a, the light bulb went on because when I pulled these levers, the performances got better. And and it wasn't just a small change. It was like night and day. Because, you know, you've I know that you've done a lot of marathons and long stuff, but when you do really, really long events, then the nutrition and hydration element of it is is almost as equally as important as the training. You know, you can, a fit person can bluff their way around a 10K or even a half marathon in a pretty decent shape and a pretty decent time. 
with with pretty lax attention towards their hydration and nutrition planning. But if you try and get yourself around an Ironman or something long, eight, nine, ten hours, without really understanding what you've got to eat and drink, then you're asking for trouble. And what I found was that if I approach that in this kind of structured way with the knowledge of in this case what i was losing in terms of sweat and electrolyte loss then i could actually massively i could take a i could take a three hour 45 marathon at the end of a an ironman and turn it into a three hour marathon because that was the kind of impact that 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 uh, that that specific niche had on my performance at the risk of skipping over too much here but since we're there right now, hydration is one of the biggest problem areas you just described for endurance athletes, particularly those who are doing the longer stuff, such as marathons, ultras, Ironman, et cetera. What are some of the biggest mistakes that these athletes are making? Like, where are they missing the mark? I think that, I think, so there's lots of, there's kind of lots of small different ways, but one of the biggest ones with ultra events and I was very guilty of this when I started doing them was there's when you boil it down, there's kind of three things, your body, there's three costs of doing a long distance endurance event nutritionally. And they are, you lose water through sweat and you lose an amount of salt and you also burn calories. And so when you really break it down, you need to replace those three things at at a rate that is, reasonable compared to your rate of loss so you need to take in x amount of you know grams of carbohydrate per hour x amount of um, fluid ounces and potentially x amount of milligrams of sodium to replace what you're losing now nutrition as a whole is much bigger than that but if you get those three fundamentals right and you get your pacing right you can kind of keep going at your optimum pace for a very long time and so it's those it's not having a good working knowledge of those three factors and what what they are for you as an individual that trips most people up in my experience because i think the the area of sports nutrition and hydration and all that has become really really confused with marketing and with science you know spurious science and you know advice that's been passed down to people over the years and the, the classic thing and you'll know this from a training perspective in in running you know the classic thing that a lot of us that, that we do as athletes is you copy a successful athlete's approach to something and the problem with copying someone's approach to hydration or nutrition is that fundamentally your needs could be very different to theirs because of your metabolism because of your sweat output because of your mm-hmm. you, know, you know all of these different fact your genetics and so it's really it, it becomes really confusing and so what people often miss is like boiling it down to those three basics, getting those right. And then only then if, if you need further tweaking, do you go meddling any further than that? Hey, we've got one more sponsor to thank for this episode. It's my friends at whoop. I'm super excited about what this company is doing for athletes. Whoop is a fitness wearable. It's just a band that you wear around your wrist that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. 
Here's what's great about Whoop from my experience. Every day when you wake up, you get a recovery score based on your HRV, resting heart rate, and sleep performance that can be used as an indicator to how to approach your day and your training. If you get a green recovery, that's a sign that you have a more intensive workout, but if it's red, that's a signal that you might want to take a rest day or have an active recovery day. The Whoop app even has built-in features like the Strain Coach, which actually gives you target exertion goals based on the level of intensity your body is signaling that it can handle. If you're not sure what type of training your body is ready for, this is an awesome feature to keep you from overdoing it. And based on how strenuous your day is, the app has a built-in sleep coach, which actually lets you know how much sleep you should be getting so that you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals, which you can set for yourself. For everyone listening to this, Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Mario. That's my name when you check out. Go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P dot com, and enter Mario, that's M-A-R-I-O, at checkout and save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. My thanks to Whoop for supporting the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Do you think the average athlete isn't really doing what they can in these areas because the information that's out there, or at least the way that it's presented is just too overwhelming to sift through. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a big part of the problem. I think that because you can read 10 different articles on the subject and get 10 wildly different opinions that, that very much so doesn't help. So when, you know, when we're confronted with loads and loads of contradictory information like that, what most people do is kind of throw their arms up and go, well, screw it. I'll just do whatever, you know, because Mm -hmm. clearly it doesn't seem to, there doesn't seem to be a consensus. And then the other thing for it is, I think that, and this was what I was guilty of when I was younger, is that it's, it requires a little bit of kind of methodical and painstaking trial and error, which is, which does take time and it takes effort and it takes commitment and although athletes are often very committed to their training and are kind of see themselves as committed people, I certainly was hugely committed to how much training I was doing. But some of these peripheral things like noting down exactly what I ate and drank and comparing that to my performance, those kind of things didn't register with me at that, you know, as a youngster. And what I find we spend a lot of time doing now when we work with athletes right up to the pro level is taking them back to basics and actually analyzing some of these really and just repeatedly going over and over these same basics until they really, really understand, you know, what their levels of requirement are for carbs, for fluids, for salts. And then it's amazing. Once you get those things dialed in, you know, performance becomes a lot more consistent and a lot more reliable. I think you nailed it. And I see the same thing from a coaching perspective, you have a lot of people who are just missing the marks on the fundamentals. And it's a lot easier and less time consuming to chase some of these other things um, than it is to just like nail the the big basics, which I mean, just they take an investment of of time. uh, And it oftentimes takes a bit of trial and error, especially in the area of nutrition and hydration to understand what works for you. But it's a lot easier to just see what your buddy is doing and say, I'm just going to do that and not really, you know, understand like, oh, well, why isn't that working for me? Yeah, I think I think one of the analogies there is is like the, the whole approach to medicine these days and the fact that we all, we've been told so many times that taking regular exercise and getting fit and it, if you could package up those benefits into a pill, that pill would sell like crazy, 
you know, because it would be the best thing that the majority of people can do for their health, but still the majority of people don't do it. Well, with athletes, you know, what Nike have done recently, which is so phenomenally clever, is they've, uh, you know, arguably taken all this sort of the, the benefits that you could get from really nailing your you know, nutrition and hydration, and everything for a marathon and, and packaged it up and made it into a shoe. And you can just buy the shoe, you know, and get yourself for, for 300 bucks. You can make a huge leap in performance or whatever, because because inherently we all know that, you know, we'd all rather just kind of do that one simple thing rather than go through the 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 arduous process of of fiddling around with all these other variables that take time to nail down yeah i think that's just the the human psyche when i worked in run specialty you'd have people who came in and say i have plantar fasciitis can you give me the best shoe or insert for plantar fasciitis if that existed some guy would be a trillionaire at this point. It it doesn't exist. We've got to understand why do you have plantar fasciitis in the first place? Is it due to training errors? Is it due to, you know, the way that your body is structured, lack of mobility? And people don't want to hear that because it takes too much time. They just don't want their foot to hurt anymore. Um, So I think you're spot on in that assessment. Yeah, we've we've found that as a company, you know, we sort of, we've almost started to go full circle because we started out as a consultancy to work with athletes to solve one really narrow dimension of their performance or help them to improve their hydration strategy, which was very labor intensive, a lot of one-to-one consultations, a lot of that kind of stuff. And then we moved because we started to produce products, we moved into the product space. And obviously then you become quite focused on product sales and, and all of that. But more recently, what we found is that where we get in the best, the, the best results with athletes is with athletes that engage with us and actually not only use the products because our products are you know i obviously i i think our products are really good but they they're nothing magic but what we do with people is we really help them to try and error and figure out how to use them properly in their circumstances and then they get great benefits from from doing that and then for us they become really loyal customers and just recently during the the coronavirus pandemic we've set up an initiative where we're setting up free um, online zoom one-to-one consultations with with athletes who've got questions about their hydration their nutrition their performance and we were just blown away by the amount of people that that actually connected with us and had a 20-minute call Mm -hmm. and wanted to learn more and and figure out how not necessarily to use our products more effectively, but how to just kind of nail their hydration and nutrition strategy better. And that, that for me is kind of the, becomes the future of our business is yes, we, we maybe provide products that, that work in a lot of situations. And that's a, that's commercially as a, a revenue stream and that underpins what we do. But actually what we need to be doing more of is really working with athletes to, get them to use these things properly because then they'll get the best results and encouraging them. So we're producing spreadsheets and guides and things that we can give out to people to say, look, record what you're doing, record your, your outputs, record your nutritional inputs. And then let's talk together about what trends we're seeing there. Cause myself and the team at PH are now developing a really, really big sort of database of experience there of working with athletes and and figuring out, okay, well, we've seen this kind of case study before and what worked with that type of athlete in that type of situation and trying to, trying to get people to, to then figure it out. Because as you all have, as you all have found over the years, you know, once, once you figure out your recipe for you as an individual, 
that's the most important thing to then going forward and performing. And, you know, that then becomes what our, our mission morphs into is like, okay, well, how do we, how do we get these people and really help them to, to understand the best way to trial and error their way to their, their best solution? I think you guys do a tremendous job of that, whether it's the free sweat test that you can take online or your blog, which I've learned a lot from. It's an incredible resource that isn't salesy, markety, pitchy in that way towards your products. It's just very educational and informational. And whether or not you end up buying something from Precision Hydration, you can walk away from reading one of those better informed than you were beforehand. And I think that builds a level of, speaking for myself, it builds a level of, of trust and loyalty to a brand because you know that they're just not trying to sell you something. They're actually trying to help you and look out for your best interests. Well, I, I mean, I, yeah, it's nice to hear you say that because one of the things that we've, we've tried to do is, is, is not take that, that hard sell approach because whilst it might work for some people in the short term, if we want to be around in 10 years or 15 years or have a long, you know, we want to be here um, working with and doing business with athletes for, you've kind of got to continually add value. And, you know, on, especially during the, 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 the coronavirus pandemic, we've seen people, you know, reading more of our articles, spending more time on the articles and that kind of thing. And then that, that's really, that's sort of really encouraging for us as a team to then spend more time writing and producing those things, those things and, you know, trying to be as authentic as we can with them because we've got a good, we've, we've kind of, a lot of the people on the team that, that work with me now are either sports scientists or athletes themselves or, or combinations thereof. And what I'm doing continually now is trying to get them to say, okay, well, let's, let's like expand what we're talking about and draw on our own experiences. Because if you've had these experiences, you know, Mm-hmm. other people will have done and can probably learn from them because i know you and i've talked before and i've mentioned it a few times when we've been talking today about this kind of the whole burnout thing and you know i've written about that on our blog and that's been one of the most read blogs that we've that we've had when we look at the stats which has got nothing to do with hydration or nutrition or anything like that but it seems those common things that resonates with athletes so yeah that's 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 very very much so becoming the broader mission of, of what we're trying to do is is you know talk to athletes educate them or or put information out to them that helps them improve their performance because ultimately that's that's the goal going back to the early days of precision hydration as you mentioned it started as more of a consultancy and then a couple of years later you morphed into making and selling your own products. But in those early days when you decided to go that route, were you all in on it from the very beginning or were you still working other jobs to support yourself? Uh, yeah, we, I was definitely, you know, we took a bootstrapping approach, although between us, there was a small group of guys that we, we all put some money in. It was a pretty small amount of money in terms of the kind of investment you usually see in starting a, a brand or a company. So, I was I was like working my coaching job and running a sports science lab and, and bootstrapping it alongside it. And it was it was only about five, five or six years ago that I really kind of had the confidence and we were generating the kind of revenue that allowed me to to step into it full time. So it's been a pretty it's been a it, it's been a pretty organic journey to to where we've got to now. We haven't we haven't done it through any kind of accelerated growth. 
you mentioned a little while ago about burnout. And that's one of the things that we've connected on over the last few years. And last year, I think it was about last year, maybe close to two years ago when I was dealing with a bit of that myself, you were great on checking in with me and just sharing your own experiences. You passed along that blog post that you mentioned. And you have kind of, as you've described in this conversation, conversation had a bit of a, a cycle of that, whether it was overtraining in sport and then needing to pull back or, you know, just going too hard in some area of your life and then needing to to pull back. Is that something that you still struggle with today to some degree? Yeah, definitely. Not nowhere near as bad as I used to, I don't think, because when I was overtraining as an athlete, I honestly looking back, I had I had no idea of what I was doing. Even when I was overtrained and people were telling me I was overtrained, I I didn't kind of believe it because I was I I bought into the mantra that more hard work is better and that there was no there was no dissuading me of of that sort of thought process and it it took a couple of real bit bad episodes of burnout and breakdown to start to get an inkling that that actually maybe that wasn't true and then actually it was kind of you know like reading the stuff that you've put out and reading I don't know the guys personally but I've corresponded with them a little bit um Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus who I know that you've interacted with quite a lot and reading the stuff that they've put out which started to give me an appreciation that okay well maybe this is like a thing that if you're as an athlete, you've, you've, you've pushed yourself really hard. I started to look at the way that I approached working in the business and, and, and I was reading a lot of the kind of Silicon Valley tech worker type stuff about working until you fell asleep at your desk and then sleeping under your desk and then getting up and going again and working all the weekends and, and all those sort of things. And I've done my, I've done my element of that over the years, you know, when I've been highly motivated and, and then gradually after each episode of, of, kind of overdoing it have probably changed something or you know pulled back a little bit but the big the the massive change for me came when I had children and then you know talking to my wife about it especially in the context of having children was like well this has to kind of change because you can't you that until it's not sustainable no exactly and until the kids came along there was always the excuse in my mind that either sport or then building the business was the be all and end all so largely other things would be sacrificed and would take second best because if you're training really hard as an athlete you can justify that it's okay to come home totally smoked and unable to help out around the house or do anything other you know more productive than lie on the couch because you've done your hard training and that was what mattered that day and like screw everything else you know and then with building the business I had that attitude it was like well I'm building the business this is going to take all I've got so everything else is going to you know take second best but then you if you apply that approach with kids then that that is really really you know dangerous and sort of massively counterproductive to their future and that was being a dad and then I would always used I always used to work weekends I used to work a lot at events and we used to go to a lot of events and expos and then if we weren't at events and expos I would use the weekends as catch-up time to do loads of other you know whatever work I had going on I would just work basically and then it was a massive change for me to start to actually have to take weekends off and and it was quite tough at first 
but now I'm at a place in my life where actually, and, and credit to the people around me at work and that kind of thing for being supportive. Cause Johnny, my business partner is, young, is, is a younger guy. He's in his late twenties. He's not got kids and that kind of thing. And Johnny will still occasionally pull some pretty epic shifts at weekends and do some stuff, but he, he's very supportive of insulating me from that because he knows a, you know, a bit about the burnout thing. And also he knows that, that I need to be around for the, for, for Lucy, my wife and for the kids and, and that sort of thing. So I'm not, I would never say it's a bit, I guess I've never, you know, thankfully never been down the road of alcoholism, but I know that a lot of alcoholics sort of say that, you know, you can never sort of totally say you're cured for life because you never know. But I feel like with the burnout thing, I've got a significantly better handle on it than I ever have up to this point. How do you catch yourself when you realize that you're right up against the edge and if you take one more step or push a little too hard, you're going to fall right over? For me, a lot of people say that when they're sort of stressed or pushing it really hard, they, their sleeping suffers. And I actually have the, the polar opposite effect. And what I find is that I get this incredible, like, you know, incredible tiredness hit me on an evening and stuff and i and i get really really tired and sleep incredibly heavily and normally pretty much my whole life i've been pretty decent at getting out of bed early in the morning and i actually really enjoy getting up early and getting stuff done but when that starts to slip when i find it hard to get out of bed in the morning when i'm having to go to bed really early just because i'm smoked then that's one of the big early warning signs for me and then the other the other big early warning sign is although i'm not really really outgoing and gregarious i have i have a lot of friends and i i you know like to keep up with people on whatsapp and i've got lots of chats going and lots of emails going and social groups and that kind of thing and when i'm suffering with the whole when i'm starting to go down a hole with the overworking and stress and burnout i find that my natural tendency is to withdraw from all of that connection because i kind of don't feel like i can i don't know why but i don't feel like i can keep that up and so i I suddenly sort of withdraw from that. And that's a really, that's a really bad sign for me that it's going a bit wrong. Last question, because I think a lot of people listening to this, certainly myself have found themselves in a similar situation, whether it's overtraining, burnout in work in life or some combination of those things. So let's go a little bit further. I'd love your top tips for digging yourself out of an overtraining or burnout hole since many of the same principles apply. Yeah, I think, I, I think that one of the first things is if you're an athlete, you can, I think you can treat burnout and overtraining, whether burnout is, you know, just kind of work or whatever part of your life is burning you out you can treat overtraining and burnout quite similarly in that there's there's kind of often a repetitive stress that's that's driving at it so if it's training it is obviously the repetitive stress of doing physical training and if it's work it's it's that long hours and the and the the, the repetition of all of that and the first thing to do i find is is have a mini sort of a mini break and if you can, and that might be as short as it, if it's in the early stage, it might be as, as early as like just taking a weekend off and like, and a, that's a weekend really off where you really don't interact with your phone much and you put the computer away and all that sort of stuff. And, or it may need to be a little bit longer, the deeper you're into it, the kind of 
the longer you need to come out of it. When when I had one of my um, really bad episodes of burnout a few years ago, it was actually my wife who suggested that we take a month off and go away. And at, when she first mentioned it, it was like a, it almost seemed like a ridiculous idea, but but in the end we did it. And actually, although it took me two weeks to to start to really enjoy it when we're away I then had a fantastic two weeks and I came back and I felt like a new person so I think you kind of need for me anyway it's a good idea to have a hard stop and then and then restart and then once you restart again it's about boundaries and largely for me now that's about dictating for work you know when I'm going to start and when I'm going to finish within a day because we mm-hmm. all have such a massive job list quite often that you could conceivably go on well into the evening and well into weekends and that kind of thing. But but kind of having those boundaries of when you're going to start and stop and then just being increasingly ruthless about prioritization. And I've really appreciated actually some of the, the stuff that I've read that you've written about that around, you know, response times to emails or, um, you know, just not, being offline at certain times those kind of habits are really hard to start but when when you start them and then you actually feel the benefits of them they become easier yeah i think the boundaries for me have been so important and it's interesting that you mentioned you know a, a bit of addiction type tendencies earlier because i i think a lot of these tendencies um stem from something along those lines. I can't exactly pin what it is, but I know for me, like I can be addicted to work or addicted to my devices or addicted to these platforms. And if there's any temptation there for myself, I will probably give into it because I haven't developed the willpower to say no. So I've just got to set those boundaries and strip them out. And sometimes it's got to be out of sight, out of mind. I've got to put the computer in drawer or I've got to put the phone away. Um, What I've done recently is just, taken Twitter off of everything and signed myself out because yeah. if it's open in a browser or I, I know I'm logged in there, I'll, I'll go check it out and then I can go down the rabbit hole and I feel terrible mm-hmm. about it. Um, and everyone's a, a little bit different, but those boundaries are key and they can be really challenging at first, but it's like anything else. If you stick with them over time, you start to see the light and you realize Oh my my goodness! Like I'm a lot less stressed. Uh, I'm actually more productive. I'm happier. I'm having more quality time with my families, and you realize that it's totally worth it. Yeah, definitely. The, the Twitter one that you mentioned specifically is really interesting because I jumped on Twitter a few years ago and kind of thought it was the best thing ever and a great source of information and all the rest of it. And then after a while, I just found this correlation between you know the amount of time I spent on there and the worse I felt, and I just uh, in the end, I basically almost totally sacked it off and have not looked back. You know, it's uh, the only thing I regret from that is occasionally you do, you miss some nuggets of great information on there, but the sea of other opinion and, you know, kind of distraction that comes with it is possibly not worth it for me. So it's interesting yeah. you found that one to be the same. That's exactly it for me right now. And in the past, I have found it to be a great platform for sharing ideas, connecting with different people, having actual conversations. But recently, and I think some of it is certainly fueled by the 
political environment here in the U.S. A lot of it has to do with COVID, which can tie into the political environment here in the U.S. And there's a lot of people just shouting about stuff. And it just wasn't a place that I was enjoying as much as I have in the past. So I just needed to get out of there. And I didn't delete my account. And maybe at some point I'll be able to go back with a different perspective. But right now it just wasn't a place that was fueling me. It was more distracting me and making me feel bad. So I just had to remove it. Mm. Yeah, good call. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. I've really enjoyed the past hour or so, and hopefully with any luck, we'll be able to see each other and share some miles sometime soon. Yeah, let's hope so. Thanks, Mario. Lovely to chat. another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Whoop for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running brand led by a group of dedicated runners who are committed to building superlative quality, classically stylish, and cutting-edge running apparel for real-world athletes. I train regularly in their Twilight Tank and Reggie Half Tights, staples of their spring collection, which is now available online. And if you're looking for inspiration to stay motivated and get out the door these days, be sure to check out their journal on tracksmith.com and their Instagram feed at tracksmithrunning, where they've been sharing and creating content from around the running world. To learn more, visit tracksmith.com slash Mario and use the code Mario15, that's Mario15, when you check out and save 15 bucks off your first purchase of $75 or more. Whoop is a fitness wearable you wear on your wrist that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. It has built-in features like a strain coach and a sleep coach that help you target optimal exertion levels and tell you how much sleep you should be getting based on the intensity of your training and the signals that your body is giving you. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Mario, that's my name, when you check out. So go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P.com and enter the code Mario, M-A-R-I-O, when you check out and save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. I'd also like to give a shout out to my rockstar team here at the Morning Shakeout, John Summerford, who handles the production and makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out, Jeff Stern for social media and editorial assistance, and Chris Douglas for managing sponsorship sales. I couldn't do what I do without their help. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.